Chapter 9 Down the Spider Hole October to December 2003 Of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1 By U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable Chapter 9 Down the Spider Hole October to December 2003 Page 227 during the fall of 2003, the coalition found itself in a precarious situation whose dangers it was slow to acknowledge. The haphazard security operations of that summer and fall generated thousands of Sunni prisoners the coalition had not been prepared to hold, leading to startling revelations about the state of detention operations. The Combined Joint Task Force 7, or CJTF-7, began to realize that the former regime insurgency and the growing foreign insurgent elements were much stronger than coalition leaders had initially thought. Though tactical operations from October to December ultimately would lead to the capture of Saddam Hussein, they also would show that the insurgency was far more than just a rebellion intended to return Saddam and the former regime to power. Abu Ghraib and the Emerging Detention Problem Page 227 As the number of detainees in coalition custody approached 10,000 in the fall of 2003, CJTF-7 and its divisions struggled to manage this growing detainee population. Coalition units had few reliable means to track detainees or an accurate way to determine their names and identities. Iraqis, including tribal sheikhs and Iraqi governing council members, complained of the difficulties in obtaining information on the whereabouts of their constituents' relatives in the coalition's custody. This situation bred resentment and undermined General John P. Abizade's August 2003 pledge to Iraqi leaders to, quote, free innocent detainees with help from the local leaders, end quote. The coalition's detention facilities proved unfit. The looting of the former regime's internment facilities had left the Coalition Provisional Authority, or CPA, and CJTF-7 with an Iraqi prison infrastructure that was inadequate for the numbers and types of detainees captured by the Coalition divisions. Both Ambassador L. Paul Bremer and Lieutenant General Ricardo Sanchez were reluctant to reopen the vacated Abu Ghraib prison given its notorious role as a torture site under the former regime, but they had few options. A CPA report in the summer of 2003 concluded that Abu Ghraib was the only prison facility in condition for quick restoration to house maximum security inmates. Sanchez put the 800th Military Police Brigade, a U.S. Army Reserve unit commanded by Brigadier General Janis L. Karpinski, in charge of detention operations at Abu Ghraib, with Colonel Thomas M. Pappas and his 205th Military Intelligence Brigade responsible for leading interrogations and obtaining intelligence from the prisoners. However, the two brigades lacked personnel trained in detention and interrogation. The problem, immediately apparent, greatly slowed the vetting of detainees and the separation of those high in intelligence value from those whose information lost value over time. The Military Intelligence Brigade had to stretch its small contingent of interrogators and interpreters to support Abu Ghraib while it continued with its primary task of providing intelligence to the Corps headquarters. After six weeks as commander, Sanchez visited Abu Ghraib in August 2003 to get a better understanding of the burgeoning insurgency from the detainee population. What he saw alarmed him. Located in the middle of a former Republican Guard area with a pro-Saddam population, the Abu Ghraib facility experienced almost daily mortar and rocket attacks. 
The military policemen, who also lacked combat experience or training, were ill-prepared to secure the facility on their own. Sanchez attributed the military police brigade's ineffectiveness to a lack of training and to Karpinski's failed leadership. Although he decided not to relieve Karpinski in the absence of a replacement, Sanchez placed Pappas formally in charge of Abu Ghraib. His concerns also led him to try to consolidate detention operations in a series of fragmentary orders in late summer 2003. Sanchez requested outside assistance to advise him and his units on how to manage detainee operations. In the meantime, the situation at Abu Ghraib worsened as the detainee population grew. By October, the 7,000-man detainee population at Abu Ghraib outmanned the 92 military police on duty there by approximately a 75-to-1 ratio, compared to the 1-to-1 ratio used at the Guantanamo Bay Cuba detention facility. To fill their personnel shortfalls, both brigades turned to contractors who often lacked training in military interrogation techniques, policy, and doctrine, a measure that had serious consequences. The Status of the Detainees These detention problems were compounded by the coalition's internal confusion about the legal disposition of those in CJTF-7 custody and how they should be handled in detention and interrogation. It was unclear, for instance, whether the Fedayeen and those detained after major combat operations ended were enemy prisoners of war, or EPW, who, by law, should be treated under the provisions of the Third Geneva Convention, civilian internees or detainees treated under the provisions of the Fourth Geneva Convention, or unlawful enemy combatants, a category that U.S. officials in Washington had ruled were not entitled to the protections guaranteed to EPWs under the Geneva Conventions. Options for trying the detainees included courts-martial, military commissions, and the Iraqi courts, each with its advantages and disadvantages. Courts-martial generally were appropriate only for U.S. military personnel under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Military tribunals could result in a death penalty sentence, an outcome opposed by the United Kingdom and the international community. The Iraqi courts, in their infancy, proved inconsistent in 2003. Ultimately, it was determined that the prisoners CJTF-7 had in custody did not meet the criteria of enemy prisoners of war, and that they should instead be treated as civilian internees covered under the statutes of the Fourth Geneva Convention. At the same time, it was decided that relatively few met the criteria for unlawful combatants, a category that President George W. Bush outlined in a February 7, 2002 memorandum that instructed the U.S. military how to treat the al-Qaeda and Taliban fighters on the battlefield in Afghanistan. The decision to categorize CJTF-7 prisoners as civilian internees gave those captured considerable legal protections, including a requirement for semi-annual reviews of their detention status. Like many decisions made in the first few months after the end of major combat operations, it became an unchanged precedent that had a profound impact on the conduct of the war. The Abu Ghraib Abuses The nebulous legal status of detainees created fertile ground for abuse and misconduct. After September 11, 2001, or 9-11, and the invasion of Afghanistan, the president approved a set of methods labeled, quote, enhanced interrogation techniques, end quote, for use against, quote, unlawful enemy combatants, end quote, that many believed were prohibited by the Geneva Conventions. 
This decision opened the door for those interrogating, quote, unlawful enemy combatants, end quote, to use a host of methods not listed in the Army's Field Manual for Intelligence Interrogations, Field Manual 34-52. Confusing and inconsistent unit policies on interrogation techniques resulted in methods involving, quote, mild physical contact, end quote, that were outside the Geneva Convention's guidelines but used in order to obtain time-sensitive intelligence on terrorist activities. At an American detention facility in Bagram, Afghanistan, two Afghan detainees died in U.S. custody in a November 2002 incident that did not result in any changes until after the scandal at Abu Ghraib became public in 2004. Sanchez later would assert that the Army's reluctance to acknowledge the Bagram abuses committed by soldiers of the 28th Airborne Corps prevented it and U.S. Central Command, or CENTCOM, from rectifying the greater problems of legal interrogation procedures. In the absence of specific guidance from the Army, CENTCOM, or CJTF-7, interrogators in Iraq during 2003 relied on Army FM-34-52 and on unauthorized techniques that had migrated from loosely supervised interrogations in Afghanistan. Elements of the 519th Military Intelligence Battalion, which had just come from Afghanistan, became responsible for managing interrogation operations at Abu Ghraib in late July 2003. It prepared draft interrogation guidelines that closely resembled the standard operating procedures used by Special Operations Forces in Afghanistan in 2003. Many of those techniques did not conform to the Geneva Conventions. At the CJTF-7 level, however, Sanchez and other senior leaders apparently were unaware of the Afghanistan connection and the Bagram incident. They only knew that their soldiers struggled to manage interrogations of suspected Iraqi insurgents and foreign terrorists. In Mosul, the 101st Airborne Division reported it was investigating alleged detainee abuse by soldiers from one of its intelligence companies, a development that revealed not just soldier wrongdoing, but also the greater problem of inadequate experienced personnel and infrastructure to support detention and interrogation operations. In the 4th Infantry Division's area, Major General Raymond Odierno observed similar problems, and recognizing that he was unlikely to receive the resources needed to manage his large detainee population properly, began sending increasing numbers of his division's prisoners to Abu Ghraib, a facility the 4th Infantry Division presumed was more professionally run than the division's local detention centers. Odierno and his division had little idea that the theater detention center in Baghdad was as fraught with problems as those run by the divisions. Sanchez's request for outside assistance on detention operations was fulfilled when Major General Jeffrey D. Miller arrived on August 31st with a team from the detention facility in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, to evaluate the strategic interrogation of detainees in Iraq. Miller's team identified many problems with the detention facility at Abu Ghraib and received Sanchez's approval to make on-the-spot adjustments to military police and military intelligence operations at the facility and to detainee segregation methods. But Miller's primary focus concerned the effectiveness of interrogation operations. On September 9th, he advised that CJTF-7 should train a dedicated guard force that was, quote, actively engaged in setting the conditions for successful exploitation of internees, end quote. In other words, he recommended that military police at Abu Ghraib should create an environment in support of military intelligence interrogations. After conferring with CENTCOM on October 12th, Sanchez issued a new CJTF-7 policy authorizing methods, quote, only slightly stronger than those in FM-34-52, end quote. However, different units interpreted the new policy differently. 
Pappas later stated that the policy was explained to his military intelligence brigade as, quote, the things you can and can't do with interrogations, end quote. The 800th Military Police Brigade was not briefed on Sanchez's new policy because it was not responsible for interrogations. This created additional confusion between the two commands at Abu Ghraib. Miller's was not the only detention-related assistance CJTF-7 received. On October 13th, Army Provost Marshal Major General Donald J. Ryder arrived in Iraq with a second team to inspect CJTF-7 internment practices. Ryder and his people found that deficiencies in manpower and training in the detention system in Iraq created the potential for human rights abuses, although he noted that, quote, no military police units purposely applied inappropriate confinement practices, end quote. On November 6th, Ryder discussed his findings with Sanchez, including Ryder's reservations about Karpinski's ability to command and his proposals for new procedures for in-processing and managing detainees. Ryder also made recommendations about overall corrections systems management, legal processing for detainees, and plans to transition the theater detention facilities to an Iraqi-run correction system, all recommendations that CJTF-7 planned to adopt. Unfortunately, Ryder's recommendations and Sanchez's policy changes came too late. Between October 25th and November 6, 2003, at precisely the time the Ryder team was inspecting CJTF-7 detention facilities, Abu Ghraib became a site of prisoner abuse and maltreatment. Soldiers from the 372nd Military Police Company, a reserve unit from Maryland, arrived at Abu Ghraib on October 13th and were assigned guard duty in the section housing Tier 1 detainees, those considered most dangerous. On October 25th, just 12 days into its deployment, the untrained and poorly supervised soldiers dragged a prisoner around the cell block on a cargo strap leash while taking photos of the detainee and private first class Lindy England. This behavior degenerated further when, on November 3rd, an Army Criminal Investigation Division, or CID, interrogator brought to the Tier 1 section a new prisoner suspected of involvement in the killing of five Americans and instructed 372nd Military Police Company Sergeant Charles Grainer to subject the detainee to stressful treatment in order to soften his resistance to questioning. Grainer shouted at the man while forcing him to stand hooded on an empty box for hours at a time. Joined by fellow military policemen, Sergeant Ivan Chip Frederick and Specialist Michael Smith, Grainer attached the detainee to some loose electrical wires hanging from a wall, telling him that if he moved, he would be electrocuted. Other detainees were sodomized, stacked naked in human pyramids, beaten, and raped. None of the soldiers knew that the photos of their acts of abuse from that week would surface months later and cause a worldwide uproar. At the time, Sanchez, CJTF-7 Intelligence Chief Brigadier General Barbara Fast, Karpinski, and Pappas were unaware of these abuses, which would not come to light until early 2004. However, Sanchez's concerns increased on November 5th, when an Iraqi detainee died at Abu Ghraib while being questioned by non-Department of Defense or DOD U.S. interrogators, just two days after Grainer's as-yet-unknown abuse incident. The man had died from blows to the head in an incident that a DOD autopsy ruled a homicide. While Sanchez remained concerned about detention issues, he was convinced for the moment that other agencies were responsible for the worst abuses, not the soldiers under his command. The Ramadan Offensive, page 231. The Insurgents Strike. 
During the fall of 2003, CJTF-7 leadership divided its attention among the seemingly disconnected though increasing incidents of violence around the country, the thorny problems of detention operations, and the planning required for the troop rotations and drawdowns scheduled for early 2004. These matters obscured indications of a concerted insurgent effort later dubbed the Ramadan Offensive. In what was to become an annual phenomenon for the U.S.-led coalition, insurgent attacks spiked significantly during the holy month of Ramadan in Iraq, which began October 26, 2003. In early October 2003, at least three Sunni resistance groups formulated plans to attack the coalition during the holy month of Ramadan. Jaish Muhammad had grown considerably by filling its ranks with former Fedayeen members. It also developed a relationship with a national Islamic resistance front led by a former Iraqi colonel and Saddam's half-brother, Sabawi Ibrahim al-Tikriti, the latter based in Syria. Tikriti and the former colonel made an agreement with Syrian leaders whereby members of the group could purchase supplies inside Syria at reduced prices, transit the Iraq-Syria border with ease, and receive direct support from Syria through the Syrian branch of the Ba'ath Party. Jaish Muhammad also had well-established cells in the Sunni areas of the Rashid and Karada districts of Baghdad, as well as Ramadi, Fallujah, and Bakuba, and was well-positioned to attack a variety of coalition military targets. The Ansar al-Islam offshoot, Ansar al-Sunnah, also prepared for attacks against two of its historical enemies, the Patriotic Union of Kurdistan, or PUK, and the Turkish military presence in Iraq, as well as against some other international players. Ansar al-Sunnah acted quickly on its plans to attack Turkish interests, carrying out a suicide car bombing of the Turkish embassy in Baghdad on October 14th. This bombing caused no casualties other than the bomber. Finally, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi intended to use both foreigners and Iraqis to initiate his own offensive against the coalition, Iraqi security forces, and coalition partners. These resistance groups marked the Ramadan holiday with a series of attacks targeting the coalition military and the fledgling Iraqi security forces. They also attacked the locations hosting Deputy Secretary of Defense or SECDEF Paul Wolfowitz, who was making a visit to Iraq as Ramadan began. Shortly after Wolfowitz visited Tikrit on October 25th, rocket-propelled grenade fire downed a Black Hawk helicopter, wounding five soldiers. On October 26th, a mortar attack killed one soldier at an Abu Ghraib police station, a gunman assassinated a deputy mayor of Baghdad, and rockets struck the Rashid Hotel in Baghdad where Wolfowitz was staying. Although the deputy secretary emerged unhurt, the attack killed an American colonel and wounded 16 others. The next morning, a suicide bomber drove an explosives-laden ambulance into the headquarters of the International Red Crescent in Baghdad, killing 12. Five additional suicide car bombings against Iraqi police stations in Baghdad followed in the space of 45 minutes, killing one American soldier, 26 Iraqi civilians, and eight Iraqi police officers. Police captured a sixth would-be suicide bomber, a Sudanese national. After a bloody two days of fighting with 47 dead and 244 wounded, attack rates against the coalition and its supporters continued to rise for the rest of Ramadan, reaching a peak of 45 per day. Ramadan also brought increased targeting of coalition aircraft. On November 2nd, Sunni militants shot down a CH-47 Chinook helicopter west of Baghdad, killing 16 soldiers and making it the deadliest single day for American troops since March 23rd, the most costly day of the invasion. 
The attack was most likely carried out by Albu Isa tribesmen retaliating against the coalition for arresting a senior Albu Isa leader, Sheikh Barakat, just days before. A few days later, insurgents shot down a Black Hawk helicopter near Tikrit, killing another six soldiers. Shortly thereafter, a Black Hawk attempting to avoid enemy fire collided with another Black Hawk in Mosul, killing 17 soldiers and bringing the number of American troops killed in the space of two weeks to more than 60. The Ramadan attacks also targeted U.S. coalition partners. On November 12th, a suicide car bomber dispatched by Zarqawi attacked the headquarters of the Italian military contingent in Nasiriya, killing 19 Italian soldiers and 8 Iraqis. This attack was the deadliest against international troops since the beginning of the war and marked the Italian military's single worst loss of life since World War II. During the rest of the month, insurgent attacks killed two Japanese diplomats near Tikrit, two Korean contractors, and one Colombian national. On November 29th, Ansar al-Islam killed an additional seven Spanish intelligence agents in an ambush in Mahmudiyah. These attacks brought the total number of coalition dead and wounded during the month of Ramadan to at least 126 soldiers killed and more than 750 wounded, surpassing the death toll of the invasion and subsequent major combat operations to that date. In addition to causing hundreds of military casualties, the more than 1,000 insurgent attacks in November targeted Iraqi infrastructure, Iraqi security forces, and Iraqis believed to be cooperating with the coalition. Sanchez noted that during the 32 days of Ramadan, insurgent attacks on Iraqis doubled, with a total of 74 recorded attacks against civilian or Iraqi government officials and 84 attacks against the Iraqi security forces. Among the Iraqis killed was Muhan Jabir al-Shuwaili, a judge from Najaf in charge of a commission investigating former members of Saddam's regime. His death sparked protests by Iraqis demanding better security. A final, bloody confrontation in the 4th Infantry Division's area of operations marked the end of Ramadan. On November 30th, more than 100 insurgents wearing Fedayeen Saddam uniforms ambushed two American convoys delivering new Iraqi currency to banks in Samarra. The 4th Infantry Division repelled the assaults, killing at least 54 of the attackers. But the message from the holy month of Ramadan was clear. Iraqi and foreign Sunni resistance groups were sufficiently resourced and organized for larger-scale operations against coalition targets, a far cry from the isolated dead-enders SecDef Donald Rumsfeld and CJTF-7 had expected to eliminate. Response to the Ramadan Attacks in Baghdad, Bremer cast the increased insurgent activity as, quote, no strategic threat, end quote, to the CPA-led reconstruction operations and emphasized that the United States would not, quote, cut and run, end quote, from the country. Outside Iraq, some analysts viewed the Ramadan offensive as analogous to the 1968 Tet Offensive in Vietnam, meant to convince Americans, their coalition partners, and Iraqis that the coalition was involved in a losing cause. In Washington, the administration responded to the deteriorating situation by announcing the CPA's mission would be sharply curtailed. On November 15th, the United States announced that the transition of sovereignty to Iraqi control would occur at an accelerated pace in just over seven months rather than the originally planned two to three years. The new timeline called for the selection of a transitional assembly that would elect a provisional government in June 2004 when Iraq would be granted sovereignty and the CPA would dissolve. 
Before national elections, a set of principles of government would become Iraq's basic laws and eventually lead to a new constitution. In addition to the perception of success, the administration hoped that the accelerated transfer of authority, power, and sovereignty to Iraq would reduce support for the insurgency. Beyond the United States, the late 2003 insurgent offensive had a significant impact on international involvement in the coalition campaign. The United Nations, or UN, had already largely removed its footprint to Jordan. The November bombing of the Italian Carabinieri in Nasiriyah placed considerable pressure on Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi, whose decision to contribute troops to Iraq was already controversial to the Italian public. Pressure mounted on other contingents, including the British, to avoid further casualties because of the political consequences. The Ramadan attacks had begun the fraying of the coalition in Iraq, leaving the United States with the challenge of keeping it together. As insurgent attacks mounted during Ramadan, coalition commanders launched counterattacks of their own. Quote, we are going to get pretty tough, end quote, Sanchez told reporters on November 11th. On the following day, the same day the Italian contingent in Nasiriyah was bombed, the 1st Armored Division launched a series of strikes to disrupt enemy operations in Baghdad. AC-130 Spectre gunships, artillery, and mortars targeted likely launch sites for insurgent mortar attacks, while 1st Armored Division units and Iraq Civil Defense Corps battalions set up additional checkpoints throughout Baghdad. To combat the increasing numbers of improvised explosive devices, or IED, the division ordered soldiers to shoot to kill anyone digging along roads after dark. The division also launched an operation to crack down on black marketeering and other criminal networks in Baghdad, activities Major General Martin Dempsey believed were contributing to the insurgency. The division's military police also began detaining Iraqi police leaders with links to former regime organizations. These operations extended beyond Baghdad. On December 10th, after insurgents attacked Spanish troops traveling between Baghdad and Anbar, the 82nd Airborne Division undertook a series of 18 raids targeting those thought to be responsible. Further west, just before Christmas, the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment raided insurgent training camps in Rawa, capturing 11 high-value targets and a significant amount of weaponry and electronics. The 82nd Airborne Division complemented these offensive operations with non-lethal activities, such as paying to refurbish almost half of Anbar's 702 mosques during Ramadan. Meanwhile, in northern Iraq in late November and early December, the 101st Airborne Division conducted a series of operations culminating in a December 10th raid against 34 simultaneous targets in Mosul, resulting in the detention of 54 suspected insurgents, including a former Fedayeen general. The 4th Infantry Division hunted former regime loyalists in Tikrit, Bakuba, Kirkuk, and Balad, destroyed insurgent safe houses, and captured over 600 suspected insurgents. Sanchez credited these activities with reducing attacks against coalition troops in the division's area of operations. Because of the heightened insurgent activity during Ramadan, Odierno asked Sanchez for the use of the 3rd Brigade, 2nd Infantry Division en route from Kuwait to relieve the 101st Airborne Division in Mosul. The brigade, the first striker-equipped unit employed in Iraq, conducted raids and patrols in Samara and Balad, the suspected sources of the massive insurgent ambush that had occurred on November 30th. Odierno used the striker brigade to launch another operation on December 17th, targeting retired officers and prominent Baathists in Samara. This sweep lasted nearly two weeks and resulted in the detention of 15 high-value targets and 111 other suspected insurgents, along with the discovery of 26 major weapons caches. 
Although each coalition division believed its operations against hostile forces were precise and successful, it could only measure its effectiveness in terms of the numbers of people detained and the number of weapons and ammunition seized. The divisions could not correlate their tactical operations to a reduction in violence and still lacked an accurate sense of the depth and nature of the various militant groups permeating their areas. Thus, their expansive clearing operations and raids were essentially movements to contact, symptomatic of units' dearth of information about whom they were fighting, and they often equated to only temporary setbacks for the insurgent organizations. The Coalition's Situational Awareness the Ramadan attacks forced CENTCOM and CJTF-7 to re-examine their intelligence picture of enemy activity. Although Abizade remained convinced that, quote, unemployment was the primary source of strength for the insurgency, end quote, foreign-led terrorist organizations were clearly becoming problematic as well. On October 28th, two days into the Ramadan offensive, Abizade briefed the Joint Chiefs on Iraq's enemy force, which he estimated consisted of approximately 4,000 former regime loyalists, 2,000 members of Ansar al-Islam, and an unknown number of foreign fighters, though he judged the number of foreign fighters cited elsewhere had been overstated. At CJTF-7, Red Cell leader Colonel Derek Harvey and other senior officers believed Abizade was underestimating the insurgency's strength. CJTF-7 units were reporting a higher level of enemy activity than Abizade's 6,000-plus insurgents could carry out, and U.S. troops had already detained more than 10,000 suspected insurgents in Abu Ghraib. The insurgency's networks were more complex than previous estimates appreciated, CJTF-7's officers judged. There were extensive relationships among, quote, the former denizens of Saddam's regime, the jihadists sneaking into the country, the tribes who were sympathetic to the brewing insurgency, and Zarqawi's organization, end quote, Harvey concluded. In a report entitled, quote, Sunni Arab Resistance, Politics of the Gun, end quote, Harvey detailed how Iraq's highly militarized society, paramilitary organizations, and intelligence services established under Saddam's regime had provided the foundation for a well-trained and organized insurgency. After the fall of the regime, an estimated 65,000 to 95,000 Special Republican Guard officers, intelligence officers, Fedayeen Saddam forces, Ba'ath Party militias, and their ilk had faded into the population in and around Baghdad. But even Harvey and his experts were unsure of who among these ready-made insurgents was running the insurgency's operations, and CJTF-7 continued to scramble to find enemy leaders and operatives ahead of planned attacks. This former regime threat was matched by a metastasis of Salafi militant organizations. At the same time that CJTF-7 senior analysts were coming to recognize the role of the former regime in the insurgency, the command began receiving reports that Ansar al-Islam had returned from Iran in August 2003 to set up operations in Mosul, Fallujah, and Ramadi, and to train in remote encampments in Anbar for future attacks on the coalition. In November 2003, a new group calling itself the Jaish Ansar al-Sunnah announced its presence in Iraq via a fax sent to the Arab newspaper Al-Quds al-Arabi. The group was at least inspired, if not directly linked to, al-Qaeda at the time of its formation and would quickly grow to prominence as an Iraqi-dominated terrorist organization, later to compete with Zarqawi's Toeid wal-Jihad to become the al-Qaeda franchise in Iraq. Eventually, CJTF-7 correctly determined that Ansar al-Sunnah was a subset of and a successor organization to Ansar al-Islam and that it had been responsible for some of the Ramadan attacks. 
The coalition had underestimated insurgent strength in part because CJTF-7 had undercounted the number of insurgent attacks, recording perhaps as little as one-third of all of the hostile activities in the theater, Harvey and others concluded. Because CJTF-7 and its units had no master system to incorporate reports from Iraqi forces as well as civilian authorities, a number of insurgent attacks on Iraqi forces and even some terrorist strikes were omitted from the coalition's count because U.S. troops had not witnessed the attacks. IED events, roadside bombs, suicide bombs, and car bombs, especially were underreported, recorded in the coalition's Significant Activities or SIGACTS database only when an IED damaged a vehicle or wounded or killed soldiers. Following the CJTF-7 reporting criteria, coalition troops were not recording those IEDs that were found before they detonated but caused no casualties. Upon realizing a full nine months into the war that a large number of incidents had gone unreported, CJTF-7 instructed its units to report all incidents in which the coalition military or its Iraqi partners were attacked, even if the attacks resulted in no injuries or damage. CJTF-7 also standardized methods for reporting SIG acts across the theater and established clearer criteria for what should be reported as significant. Under the revamped reporting system, the Iraq theater would appear far more violent than coalition leaders had understood. The Counter-IED Fight The Ramadan period also convinced coalition military leaders to take steps against what had become the Iraqi insurgency's weapon of choice, the IED. CJTF-7 began counting IED incidents in July, and over the next five months, the number of recorded IEDs went from eight per month to a high of 95 effective IED attacks during Ramadan in November. By September 2003, IEDs already accounted for more U.S. combat deaths than direct fire weapons and indirect fire combined. To reduce IED-related casualties, unit commanders sought to improve the physical protection of their soldiers. U.S. forces in Iraq had few general-purpose vehicles with armor and even fewer vehicles equipped for counter-IED activities. Although DOD recognized that units needed more and better armored vehicles, acquiring and delivering those vehicles into the country would take some time. In the interim, units in Iraq improvised by adding so-called hillbilly armor to their vehicles, using steel, plywood, and other available materials to harden their soft-skinned vehicles. In late 2003, CENTCOM requested additional armored vehicles and add-on armored survivability kits. By November, Up-armored, high-mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicles, or HMMWV, and add-on armor kits began pouring into theater. Because many IEDs were radio-controlled, CJTF-7 also requested and received some new equipment and systems capable of jamming some of the frequencies on which insurgents detonated their IEDs. The scale of the IED problem led Abizade to propose to Rumsfeld and Myers in October 2003 that DOD should initiate a, quote, Manhattan Project-like effort, end quote, to confront this, quote, number one killer of American troops, end quote. In response, Army G3 Lieutenant General Richard A. Cody created an IED task force under Brigadier General Joseph Votel that would eventually grow into the Joint IED Defeat Organization. Institutional development of an IED task force, however, was bound to be a slow process. Concerned groups working explosive ordnance in Iraq began building their own local counter-IED task force. 
In Baghdad, special operations officers who had discovered disparate coalition units working on counter-IED measures succeeded in merging British, American, and Australian ordnance specialists and technicians into a combined explosive exploitation cell, or CEXC, pronounced sexy. Dubbed the CSI of the counter-IED fight, the SEXI surveyed post-blast sites to collect fingerprints, gather forensic evidence to link devices to individual bomb makers, and examine unique aspects of the device's deployment. SEXI also became the first consolidated organization to diagnose the composition of IED systems as well as indirect fire weapons and relay pertinent information to field commanders. Evidence gathered by sexy technicians, for example, led to the eventual capture of the insurgent cell that had rocketed Wolfowitz's hotel in Baghdad on October 26th. Across Iraq, each division developed its own local responses to the IED threat. In Baghdad, the 1st Armored Division attempted to counter IED use by increasing patrols along frequently trafficked routes to deter insurgents from placing IEDs among them. The 4th Infantry Division units gradually built a sophisticated set of techniques directed at the networks that constructed IEDs, reasoning that, quote, wherever there was an IED, there was a bomber, a bomb maker, a cache, and someone funding the operation, end quote. Tactical commanders also began discussing counter-IED initiatives with each other, including information about different types of IEDs, techniques for emplacing them, and ways to defeat the devices. By December 2003, CJTF-7 had consolidated this input with information from SEXI to create counter-IED smart cards showing pictures of IEDs along with the different firing mechanisms and recommended methods to defeat or bypass the devices. CJTF-7 also established an IED training cell and sent Center for Army Lessons Learned representatives to each division to assist with the counter-IED learning process. The Capture of Saddam Hussein Page 237 Operation Red Dawn The months-long manhunt for Iraq's former Ba'athist leadership paid off at the beginning of December with the capture of Itzat Ibrahim al-Duri's private secretary in the town of Hawija. Although Duri himself was not captured, commanders in the 4th Infantry Division sector believed the raid indicated they had made steady progress toward finding their most valuable target, whose capture, coalition leaders believed, could potentially break the insurgency. Saddam Hussein The eventual capture of the former Iraqi president was the culmination of six months of intelligence-driven raids. Throughout the summer and fall of 2003, soldiers of the 1st Brigade, 4th Infantry Division had formed an increasingly close partnership with the Special Operations Forces, or SOF, working in northern Iraq to bring their complementary capabilities together. Rumors about the former Iraqi dictator's whereabouts multiplied to the point they were dubbed, quote, Elvis sightings, end quote. But Odierno and his 1st Brigade commander, Colonel James Hickey, both agreed Saddam hid somewhere in Salahuddin province. After months of fruitlessly trying to find Saddam by tracking down figures in the former regime's formal structure, 4th Infantry Division leaders and their SOF partners realized they were hunting the wrong network. The key to sifting through the many possible leads was not in the Ba'athist regime's formal apparatus, but rather in identifying the unofficial security apparatus protecting Saddam, which consisted of less powerful figures who had long-standing tribal and family ties to Saddam. Beginning in July 2003, the 4th Infantry Division and its special operations partners began building a network link diagram focused on Saddam's family and clan. 
Analyzing this informal network led to the capture of Brigadier General Daham Mahmedi, a man in indirect contact with Saddam through couriers whom coalition analysts had pinpointed by examining archival news footage. When questioned, Mahmedi pointed coalition officials in the direction of Mohammed al-Muslit, a former bodyguard and relative of Saddam who was already in coalition custody but had been concealing his identity. Based on information from Muslit, Hickey and special operations leaders identified two farms on the eastern bank of the Tigris River near Ad-Dawar as possible locations for Saddam. The area around the farms, which was actually within view of the 4th Infantry Division base in Tikrit, was covered with dense vegetation. The farms themselves were located in a riverside orchard where Saddam famously had swum the Tigris to escape capture after his failed attempt to assassinate Iraqi leader Abdul Karim Qasim in 1959. The ease with which Saddam might be able to escape again meant that the soldiers on any raid to capture him would need to establish a tight cordon around the target sites. Additionally, Hickey and his special operations partners estimated that Saddam might be guarded by 20 or 30 armed individuals, potentially making capturing him alive even more challenging. The operation that Hickey and the special operations team leaders developed, codenamed Red Dawn, involved two of Hickey's infantry battalions, the 299th Engineer Battalion, an aviation detachment, an artillery battalion, cavalry forces, and special operations teams. The plan called for the maneuver forces to provide an outer cordon on the eastern and western banks of the Tigris River, while Apache helicopters covered them. A cavalry troop provided the inner cordon for the special operations teams who, while supported by an armored car element, would assault the farms simultaneously. At 7.50 p.m. on December 13th, the first assault team reported no enemy forces at the first farm. At the second farm, the arrival of U.S. soldiers surprised two of Saddam's assistants who ran north hoping to draw the soldiers away from the small three-room farmhouse in which they resided. During their initial search of the farmhouse and surrounding palm groves, the soldiers found two AK-47s and $750,000 in cash. A more thorough search of the area with the assistance of Muslit led the soldiers to a styrofoam hatch that turned out to be the opening to a small subterranean chamber that coalition troops would later refer to as a spider hole. Inside, the U.S. soldiers found an angry-looking, unkempt man who, according to one of the battalion commanders on the scene, Lieutenant Colonel Stephen D. Russell, quote, looked remarkably similar to John Brown of Civil War days, end quote. Who are you? the soldiers asked through an interpreter. The man responded, I am Saddam Hussein, the duly elected president of Iraq. I am willing to negotiate. Although it would take several hours to confirm Saddam's identity scientifically, the 4th Infantry Division leaders were elated by the capture, as were Sanchez and then-President George W. Bush. On December 14th, Bremer opened a briefing of the coalition's leadership in Iraq to the press by announcing, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. End quote. In the wake of Saddam's capture, Saddam's December 13th capture brought the coalition a sense of euphoria and an impression that events were beginning to move in a positive direction. By the week before Christmas, CJTF 7 had observed a 39% decrease in the number of IED attacks, indicating that the coalition might be making some headway in countering IEDs. In the violent Upper Tigris region, Saddam's capture was followed by the first period of real calm in the 4th Infantry Division's area, leaving CPA and CJTF-7 with an optimistic outlook as 2003 drew to its close. 
With Saddam and a sizable amount of his money now in custody, CJTF-7 believed that the former regime elements that had threatened Iraq's stability were well on their way to being broken, though the Red Cell predicted that the impact only would be short-term. At the same time, CJTF-7 units began using information from documents and other materials captured with Saddam to pursue what they believed were the last vestiges of the former Ba'athist resistance. As they did so, one of the key lessons that SOF and conventional leaders and analysts began to apply from Saddam's capture was the importance of using information gained from detainee interrogations to help drive operations. Despite the positive signs of the days following Red Dawn, Saddam's capture did not stop some operations whose planning had most likely already been in progress. Just 12 hours after Saddam's capture, a car bomb exploded outside the police station in Khalidiyah, and suicide bombers targeted Iraqi security forces again the following day in the northern outskirts of Baghdad. That same day, another car bomb destroyed the Amaria Criminal Investigations Department. A second car bomb exploded shortly thereafter. During a December 16th press briefing in Baghdad, Myers and Sanchez minimized these attacks and focused instead on the positive impact Saddam's capture likely would have on the insurgency. Sanchez explained that the recent car bombs were probably planned for some time. Myers noted that those left for the coalition to fight consisted mainly of terrorists and remnants of the former regime. On December 19th, the 1st Armored Division began Operation Iron Grip, directed at some 14 enemy cells in Baghdad, leading to the detention of two leaders, three financiers, and 27 fighters. Maneuver units also went after suspected mortar and rocket sites used to attack the Green Zone. Because the enemy responded with only nine ineffective rocket-propelled grenade attacks on Christmas Day, Dempsey and Sanchez believed the operation had been a success, and that the former regime units in Baghdad, at least, had been neutralized. In contrast to the optimism of his fellow commanders, Abizaid explained to the National Security Council on December 19th and 20th that the former regime elements would continue to disrupt stability operations by attacking infrastructure and intimidating the vulnerable Iraqi police, and that the potential for ethno-sectarian conflict remained. Abizaid also mentioned that CJTF-7 divisions in the south continued to complain of Iranian influence, and one commander he met during his Thanksgiving trip to Iraq opined that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran was assisting the various Shia militias in that region of the country. Unemployment also remained a major problem and source of recruiting for the insurgency, the CENTCOM commander believed. To keep these prospective threats in check, Abizaid requested additional CERP funds and advised that CPA or another entity should resume oversight of Ba'athist reconciliation by injecting more Sunnis into the political process while further decentralizing development and intelligence assets down to Iraq's provinces. In the wake of Saddam's capture, the alliances of convenience between foreign terrorist organizations and foreign regime elements that Abizaid had feared also were coming to fruition. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's terrorist organization remained far from subdued. By mid-December, coalition officials noted that evidence was mounting that Zarqawi had been behind the major attacks against the UN, the Jordanian embassy, and the Italian compound in Nasiriyah. On December 27th, Zarqawi launched four near-simultaneous attacks in the Shia holy city of Karbala. 
Insurgents using car bombs, mortars, and machine guns targeted two coalition military bases located at the city's university, as well as the local police station and the mayor's office, leaving 13 dead and more than 170 wounded, with the death toll including six coalition soldiers from the Bulgarian and Thai contingents stationed there. Among the wounded were 37 coalition soldiers, including five Americans. Alarmed, Dempsey ordered his soldiers in Baghdad and the Iraqi police to increase security in the capital by raising additional razor wire fences and establishing checkpoints in key areas of the city ahead of the New Year's holiday. Quote, We will act appropriately to make sure that our soldiers and the Iraqi populace are protected against the potential attacks against us, end quote, General Dempsey told reporters. Just hours later, a car bomb tore through Baghdad's popular Nabil restaurant, a spot frequented by Westerners and upper-middle-class Iraqis, killing eight and wounding dozens more. The blast was the worst in a series of bombings throughout the country that day, confirming the fears of some officials and military leaders that the real fighting in Iraq had only begun. End of Chapter 9, Down the Spider Hole October to December 2003. Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021.